Welcome to the Dental Breakdown Show. This show is where we break down issues in the dental marketplace. My name is Christian White, CEO of White & Associates Practice Consulting, Better Business, Better Dentistry. All right, uh, Joe Frickton, we are moving on to our next topic of conversation, and it's one that you know very well, and it's about practice financing. And I think a lot of our listeners want to know, has that has, has that changed because of COVID? Has there been, you know, kind of a lot of things that are different now? You know, maybe let's go ahead and start our conversation with that topic. Yeah, thanks, Christian. It is a, um, this is a, I think a really important topic to discuss because it can really impact a, um, how a transition goes and how smoothly um, it's going to be going. So one of the things I, I saw is that a number of the banks in, over the summer kind of pulled back a little bit on financing, kind of slowed things down. Uh, but you know, since August or so, uh, you know, all the banks are back and doing fairly normal lending, normal practice finance. Um, but what what we're seeing right now is the um, that banks are taking a closer eye on uh, transactions as the ones uh, practice transition that has where a practice is very um, very profitable and there's a lot of cash flow to be able to support the practice loan as well as the the loans of the buying doctor and their um, their individual expenses those uh, deals go through very easily through underwriting um, we're seeing no change in them, uh, 100% financing, um, no down payment on the practice. Uh, the, they will uh, loan to, for the sale of a building. You know, that's no problem. But what we're seeing is that the, the transi- transactions that are tighter from a cash flow standpoint, where there's maybe less profit there, um, that banks ta- are taking a lot harder look at those and they are not an automatic uh, funding where they might have been in 2019. Um, the banks are looking for, they'll sometimes want a seller carryback loan, meaning that the selling doctor needs to finance a part of the sale um, on the, uh, both on the practice and on the, on the building sale potentially. And so those are the ones that we need to work uh, more. I'm working a lot more with, with the bankers to explain how the cash flow is working and to make sure that they see where all the profit is in the practice. Um, it's really important for a, when a selling doctor is going to, when they're selling their practice and a buying doctor, when they're uh, filing applications, submitting applications to banks is that they fully explain where the profit is in the practice. Um, if they, they might have, you know, retirement contributions for themselves and, or for a family member that's working in the practice, we need to make sure that the bank knows all of those uh, quote unquote ad backs, those that that's an expense on the profit and loss statement or on the tax return, there really is going to be a, you know, profit that kind of drops to the bottom line that can be used for uh, financing the, the practice sale. So um, the other piece that we are seeing a change in is the banks are wanting more liquidity for a buying doctor. They want to see more cash on hand um, in order to uh, weather any uh, potential further shutdown, which I really don't think is going to be happening anytime soon, but that's what the banks are requiring. Um, Or just a general, um, you know, if there's a... um, downturn in the economy for whatever reason we want to make the the banks want to make sure a buying doctor has more cash on hand to kind of weather that so those are some big changes uh that we're seeing that liquidity piece as well as kind of the some uh kind of a mild tightening of of lending by institutions um the other piece that is other thing that's changed is that there are fewer banks that are financing um startup practices. That's a, a lot more of a difficult um, thing to finance, difficult practice uh, to finance with startups. I mean, most banks will still do it, but we're seeing a wide range of pack- lending packages that are being offered. 
and so it definitely helps to you know to talk to your banker about what what they're being what they're offering um, the other uh, big change uh, we talked uh, back in May um, and June about all the, the PPP um, loans that were out there was a big change by the Small Business Administration uh, about a month ago that if a practice is selling, that they need to, uh, if they still have a PP loan, PPP loan that has not been forgiven, that, they, that the selling doctor needs to escrow funds with the bank that loaned the money, um, a, an amount equal to the loan that's outstanding, the PPP loan that's outstanding. So this was something that the, the SBA just kind of dropped um, just about, about a month ago that is causing some consternation uh, as we go through closings and get closer to the sale of certain practices. Um, if there's a, um, so that means that anywhere from, you know, whatever the PPP loan is, 40,000, 50,000, $60,000 needs to be escrowed with the bank, the loan the PP, that did the PPP loan and that money needs to stay there until for the uh, SBA approves the forgiveness of that PPP loan. And what's frustrating is that, you know, the, the bank and SBA doesn't have a lien on the assets of the practice. Um, there's no personal guarantee, um, but this is a requirement now that's in place that a selling doctor needs to do in order to sell their assets and, and not jeopardize future forgiveness. So what I'm encouraging, now it, it still works. We can definitely um, go through with the sale and, and doctors are just fine, are just escrowing that money. But what I'm recommending people to do is to apply for that forgiveness now on their PPP loan. Um, there's discussion about uh, Congress doing automatic forgiveness for a lot of the PPP loans that dental practices get are getting, um, but that, uh, that has not happened so far, and we, we haven't seen any movement on that front. So what I'm encouraging my clients to do as they proceed through a practice sale is to, um, is to apply for that forgiveness now to get the ball rolling, because it's got to be go through the bank's approval process, and then it needs to be submitted to the Small Business Administration, the SBA, and then they need to approve that, uh, that forgiveness. So, which we all know how fast government works, especially with forgiving Very loans. Fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we do not want a, um, where this is really gonna come into play is if a practice is selling, uh, doing a transition and they have other debt on the books that needs to be sold off, that needs to be paid off, excuse me, then um, there's less cash available to pay off those loans. Um, and we want to make sure that that if you need that cash, that that PPP loan is forgiven now, so you can be definitely be proactive about it. So with this, these changes, what is crucial for doctors who are looking to purchase a dental practice uh, or who are looking to sell their practice is to be proactive on the financing side of things. So if they, if for a buying doctor uh, who is looking at a practice, is to get all the financials and the tax returns over to the bank that they're gonna be working with or the, the banks that they're working with and to get them to start looking at the financials um, and getting it through their process, getting the application submitted, uh, teeing it up to go to underwriting as fast as possible so we don't have any delays. Um, with the low interest rates, I've mentioned before that, uh, that, they're, that banks are very busy right now processing loans and they're under, you know, that we're seeing certain closings getting postponed because the banks are taking time to go through the underwriting process. And so even talking to your banker about, you know, how long does it take? What, you know, what are the steps that go through getting this approved? And are we gonna be able to hit our deadline? So early? Joe, despite all the change that's going on, that really hasn't had an impact or slowed down the demand for people going out there and buying dental practices. Is that Am I right? In yeah, saying definitely that? no, no slowdown on that front. Um, you know, I think that doctors are seeing an opportunity to be a practice owner, and uh, you know, now's the time with the low interest rates, and you know, with a lot of things in flux, 
people are looking to to kind of make that change. The the shutdown in the spring has been a catalyst for both doctors who are retiring, as well as doctors who have been in an associateship and they're ready to kind of take that next step in their career for practice ownership. And they are, um, so they're definitely going ahead with it. And we, well, my goal, you know, our philosophy is to try to get through the transition process as smoothly and painlessly as possible. And the key to that is talking from both the selling side and the buying side is talking to your bankers early and getting that process moving and not wait, not waiting to the last minute. Smart. Yeah. Waiting to waiting till the last minute is never a good thing. Um, it just causes more consternation, like you said, Joe. So right. that, that kind of leads me into my second question then. You know, if I'm a younger dentist um, or maybe a, you know, a dentist who's been out in the field for 10 or 15 years and I'm looking to purchase a practice, you know, uh, what should I be considering in terms of a transition? You know, what should I be thinking about? How should I go about approaching that? Why don't you talk about that real quick? Well, uh, number one is uh, make sure that you, you know, think about what, where you want to be, where you want to practice. Location is the most important thing. Um, and, uh, and then number two is think about what type of, uh, practice that they want. Um, are they looking for something that is a lot larger that they can, um, get into and is, and then making sure that their production potentially can match that, that large production on a, of a dental practice, um, or something on the smaller side from a revenue standpoint that they can grow. So they get a, you know, a lot lower purchase price. Uh, so their loans are lower, um, and then they can grow it and kind of build their own goodwill, which is um, which is also very good. There are a lot of great opportunities with uh, practices that have a little lower revenue um, that can be grown and expanded uh, pretty easily. So, and then you know, talking to doctors, talking to us, you know, we have a lot of younger doctors who just call us and pick our brain about. Um, dental practices they're for sale um, or uh, and, and have us look at the financials to make to see if it's a good fit or if there are any red flags we see that pretty uh, that's happening a lot right now so Joe if a young doctor comes to you and they're asking you questions about a practice you know what, what are your next steps in working with that younger dentist uh, number one the first step really is to Try to collect all the information information that we can on the practice. Okay. Uh, I, I'd mentioned those ad backs uh, for a bank, and a lot of times, you know, someone we ask for tax returns and and a profit and loss statement. Um, but in order to really fully understand that, we need to ask a lot of questions about that practice to see where the profit is. Um, just looking at the bottom line of a of a tax return or profit and loss statement might not give you the full story of the practice. And what we do is we, we try to uncover, um, you know, that uh, those ad backs or that kind of hidden profit in the practice where someone could grow it pretty easily. Um, we're also looking for what is a, you know, what type of, what's referred out and what's kept in house and look for ways that a doctor can um, kind of improve the profitability of the practice fairly easily. If a doctor loves to do endo and all the endos referred out, that's an easy way to grow a practice with the existing patient base. Um, that goes with Invisalign too and, and implants, implant placement. I mean, there's a lot of areas that doctors who get through their career, they, they, they really know, they kind of figure out what they like to do and what they don't like to do um, and refer the things out that they don't like to do. And so if a younger doctor's uh, they're going to go in there and see, okay, they're referring out X, Y, and Z. I like to do X and Y, but I like to refer out Z. Well, they're, they're, they're just based on the existing patient base. They're going to grow that, grow that practice. The Dental Breakdown Show, sponsored by White & Associates Practice Consulting. Better business, better dentistry. They are a practice management consulting firm for dentists and other healthcare-related businesses. Their sole purpose is to implement proven strategies through online and in-practice visits and result in the personal professional success of the dentist and his or her team. All right, so Lisa, let's, let's move over to you. Um, let, let's get back to talking about the, the staff. Um, the FFCRA, I know everybody knows exactly what that means and they know all the acronyms, 
So I don't think I have to go over that. <clears throat> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, just ask a dentist about that. Um, so tell us about that and tell us what happens if that doesn't apply to a dental practice or to my right, practice. Right. So, so the, the, the law that's taking all the oxygen out of the room is, is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Yes. And, um, but that's not the only, um, that's not the only law out there. And especially for small dental offices, there are laws they have to keep in mind when making decisions about staff and how to interact with staff during COVID-19. Um, so the big ones that a lot of bigger firms, law firms are talking to people about for their staff are, are the FFRCA. They are talking about FMLA or extended FMLA. They're talking about um, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Just dentists in Minnesota who have a smaller practice under 50 employees are not generally subject to those laws. But there are laws you have to keep in mind and laws that can trip you up if you're not careful. And the number, uh, the, there are three of them that I want to talk about. One is the Minnesota Human Rights Act, um, OSHA, and then also the Minnesota pandemic laws. So Minnesota has its own state laws that also apply specifically in Minnesota. And there might be similar state laws in other states, but I have a focus on Minnesota. So number one, the Minnesota Human Rights Act. Most states have a Human Rights Act that is similar to the Federal Human Rights Act. But the main thing is that you can't discriminate against an employee who let's say someone went out for unemployment benefits or who requests a change in their um, in your practice due to social distancing norms or maybe they requested more PPE, uh, be available. All those things are, are reasons that um, you gotta be really careful not to then later treat that employee differently than other employees. Um, this is especially true when you maybe are working with someone who's a little bit more sensitive to COVID. Um, suddenly everything becomes about that conversation you had about COVID protection or whether they get one mask or whether they get two, that kind of stuff, like how often you're changing out PPE, all that kind of stuff. Things can, can become very fraught. And then if you make a decision, they can say, well, because I asked for that protection, um, you couldn't, uh, you, you took bad action, you discriminated against me because under the Minnesota Human Rights Act. So keep in mind that how you treat one employee is how you should treat your employees. Um, it, we never like to have outliers um, and the Minnesota Human Rights Act prevents discrimination in general. So that applies to every employer in Minnesota. The second law I wanna talk about is OSHA and specifically the Minnesota OSHA rules protect um, workers who refuse to return to work because their work is not safe. Um, there, are, there are protections um, for those employees. They can receive benefits and they can, um, they can have um, the Minnesota OSHA investigate those sorts of claims. Now, that doesn't mean that someone can just say, I'm worried about getting COVID, so I don't want to come back to work. That's too general a statement. Um, and there, especially this spring, there were a lot of people who did not want to come back to work because of their situation, because they were worried about it. But if someone um, says something like, I don't want to work with this tool doing hygiene because it creates too much aerosol. Now there's a really specific request and you better work through that with that employee about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. What maybe let them know what um, the Minnesota Board of Dentistry, um, the CDC and others have said about aerosols and help them learn and help you learn so you can all agree that you're working in the safe environment. But those are the sorts of things we see people complain about is I made a complaint and then um, I had to leave because it wasn't safe. Um, so careful for, for OSHA. And again, if you have someone, if a staff member is sick, still report it, even if you're very sure it's because they went out to a bar a week ago, doesn't matter, still report it. Um, it's part of OSHA regulations. The third law, which is a pretty unknown law, but has been brought up by um, Minnesota State um, over and over again that I've seen included in a lot of their literature and advice to employers right now is that Minnesota does have a law that requires all employers to provide 21 days of unpaid leave if someone is quarantining because they've been ordered to. Now, the twist there is if they've been ordered to. So contact tracing is not fast. It's really slow. Um, and some, I, I've heard of at least three counties now in Minnesota who have stopped contact tracing because there's just so much 
going on. So if there's no contact tracing, there's no one ordering you to quarantine. Um, I think that the, the, this law maybe was set up for a simpler time when issuing those orders was a little bit more fact-based and a little easier. Um, but right now there is a requirement that you provide unpaid, unpaid leave up to 21 days for someone who's ordered to quarantine. So um, keep that in mind. Um, it's a little, it was, it's a Minnesota statute. It does apply to all Minnesota dentists. Okay, so then if I have a dentist and someone on my team gets sick or gets hit with COVID, that would be a situation where, you know, they would need to self-quarantine themselves. So does that come under that 21-day piece? It, it can. Um, in, the, in that situation, specifically what the law is concerned about is whether someone has to, has to quarantine because um, they're, they're not sick. They're, the law kind of assumes that if, if someone is sick, you're going to give them time off under a sick leave agreement. Um, yeah. And for most dentists, I know that they are giving people time off if they are sick. Like that's just like a basic um, thing. And because it's so prevalent out there right now, <laughs> you're going to have people who are out sick for a certain periods of time. This particular law is talking specifically about quarantining, um, that there are 21 days you can get. But I would encourage everyone to, again, and then sound like a, um, well, I'm going to repeat myself and say, look at your employee handbook, treat all your employees the same. If you're giving one employee paid sick leave and another employee not, you might have, you have to have a reason for it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe someone has a contract, like a associate dentist has a contract that gives them some paid leave, whereas a dental assistant does not, that's fine. But generally you want to treat your employees the same and how you handle this. Um, and so again, have a plan, know what you want to do for when this comes up. So then Lisa, um, I think you'd agree with me. Most dentists employee handbook is not up to par. Um, yep. It's just, it's downstairs in a box somewhere with dust on it, gathering dust. Yes. Um, so is that something that you can help the dentist with? You can go through it with them and get them up to date or, you know, is that something that you, you can take a look at for them? Absolutely. Especially if the, um, the employee handbook was written by a prior owner. Um, you really want to look at that and you really want to update to what you're actually doing today. Um, the main thing is that how you run your dental practice and what your employee handbook says they should match. That's the most, that's where we see people get into trouble is what, when what they do all the time doesn't match what their employee handbook says. Um, it's not that what you're doing is wrong. You just can't have a policy that says something else because <laughs> that's what, it, that's going to cause you problems. And there have been over the last two years, a number of statutes that have passed that require you to have provisions in your handbook that address those issues, such as wage disclosure. And uh, an old handbook isn't going to have those required provisions within um, in the handbook itself. Got it. So okay. updating, really good idea. I do help people do that. I help them write new, completely new handbooks. I help them update old handbooks. Um, you can just give me a call and we can work something out to get, get you up to date. Okay, wonderful. That's great. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, yep. So, so my, my next question is, and we kind of talked a little bit about this in the previous podcast, but, um, you know, if I have a staff member who decides to file for unemployment after they retire, or after they leave, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, what does the practice do? How does that affect the practice? That could be a really so big deal. It, it's been an unexpected big deal that's come up for a couple of the dentists I work with, where someone has done their usual two week notice and they're off and then all of a sudden they're filing for unemployment. Um, this is a bigger issue with the $600 um, in federal employment, but we might be back to another federal supplement again and you right. might be having the same thing again. Mm -hmm. um, so this is information I think is really important to have in the back of your mind in case this comes up. I've also had just, um, some odd decisions recently, and that's because of the volume that Minnesota unemployment insurance is dealing with right now. They, um, you know, we're still in, I think it was 750,000 750, people filing for unemployment across the nation last month, last week, um, last month. And some, well, a lot of that is Minnesota. That used to be what we did in a year. Um, and so they are overwhelmed. And so we're seeing some claims getting approved that probably don't, shouldn't be approved, but maybe they say COVID-19 in there somewhere. Um, so 
suddenly um, the, the Minnesota uh, Unemployment Office is, is making some decisions that maybe shouldn't be made. And so what, what I want to encourage people is that if you get a notice from them saying someone applied for and they approved benefits, you do have the ability to raise an issue. That's literally what they call it, raise an issue with that application. And using their online system is the best way for them to track and follow all those claims. You don't wanna pay out unemployment if, if it's not due to the employee. Um, the backside of that is we've had, I've been involved in a hearing where an employee had been paid out benefits and now she has to pay them all back because she shouldn't have been approved. Nobody wants someone to go through that. Um, so raising an issue early is good for you, it's good for the employee. Um, and it does, it may lead to a possible hearing down the road, but really those hearings are no big deal. They're run by an administrative law judge who does this all the time, who has complete control over the situation and it's a phone hearing, it's, it's an hour out of your, out of your day to, to, if you have to do that. But I encourage people to watch if they get a notice from Minnesota Unemployment and it looks weird, raise an issue with them um, you don't have that long to do it. You have to do it within 10 days of receiving the notice. Lisa, would you um, just briefly go through generally what, um, who is eligible for unemployment or when someone is and when someone is not eligible? Good question. Sure. So unemployment um, is meant to be for people who end up unemployed through no fault of their own. So this spring we had a ton of people who had unemployment claims because either their hours were reduced or their business was closed. Um, and we're still seeing a lot of people come in. Um, a lot of businesses, especially small businesses, are going under. So where you still have unemployment claims that are way up higher than normal. But if you have someone who gives you two weeks notice or maybe not even that much because they're going to an office down the street and then they quit there and now they're filing unemployment, that's not a proper unemployment um, claim against you. You don't know what happened in that other office and you don't have to know. Um, but if someone retires, if someone leaves your employment, they give you, they, they're just simply quitting, they are not eligible for unemployment benefits. That is a career decision that they made that wasn't forced upon them by their employer. Interesting, okay. So then Lisa, um, I can file for unemployment if I was at full-time employment and then my hours were, were reduced for you know, no fault of my own, correct? Am I right in saying that? Yes, yes. Okay. So let's say you have um, November is looking really slow in your dental office and you just don't have that many people coming in um, and you're maybe your dental assistant, you're going to have her come in one day a week instead of two days a week. She could file for unemployment benefits to cover that one day a week she's not coming in. And that's a legitimate claim. It has to be no fault of your own, correct? Right, right. It has to do with the business not having the work for her for that person to do and that's what unemployment is meant to cover got it okay uh, all right that that was a great piece of information right there i've i know i have and i know joe and lisa have you know dealt with some pretty uh interesting situations in terms of unemployment <laughs> yeah yeah it can get weird out there <laughs> it can get exceptionally weird <laughs> so thank mm -hmm. you very much for clearing that up all right so the next piece i'm going to jump into here real quick um the next trends that are going on right now in the practice management piece, you know, for White and Associates, you know, what am I seeing? What are we seeing when we're out there in the marketplace and as we're working with our clients and other dentists? All right, number one, the dentists all say the same thing. How do I get my patients to say yes to my diagnosis? Especially when you're in the middle of a pandemic and on the television yesterday, they, we've got 7,000 7, more COVID cases in one day. How do I get the patient to say yes? Well, this is something we've been dealing with uh, with a lot of our clients and with dentists for a while. Um, and it comes down to a couple different things. Number one, in dentistry, there are two words that, that run every dentist's life. And Frank, you will know these, uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Most dentists out there, when you talk about efficiency, you're talking about how fast can I do a procedure because that determines my income. How fast can I do a procedure? The second piece is effectiveness. And effectiveness is how do you make people feel in your presence? Dr. Frank, this gets back to that feeling piece that you were talking about earlier, all right? Now, you know, Joe, if you take your wife out for your wedding anniversary to, uh, you know, a nice restaurant, if you're treated 
efficient, you know, efficiently, you're not going to want to come back because it's not about the food. It's about a few other things other than just the food. And in dentistry, it's not just about this widget I'm going to put in your mouth. <laughs> and if it is, you know, that's one reason a lot of those dentists aren't getting, aren't doing the dentistry that they want to do because of that. So there's a couple of things to keep in mind with patients. Number one, patients accept, you know, patients say yes for their reasons, not the dentists. And that means the dentist and his or her team need to understand you know, a little bit more about the patient and you know, what are the reasons for them for moving ahead with this, with this clinical procedure. The next piece is patients, patients justify their, you know, their decisions with emotion and then you know, they look at it with, you know, and they look at it through logic. Uh, you need to understand the emotional reasons for the patient to say yes. And if you don't know what that is, there's a really great way to learn how to do that. Ask good questions. But that means we have to take some time to do that. And not all offices want to do that. But that's an important piece. The next piece is building trust. It's you know, more important for the patient to understand or feel understood by you, the dentist, than it is for them to understand your treatment plan. That is huge. Most dental, most dental practices have that reversed and they can't figure out why their schedule's open and why they're not doing more dentistry. Those are you know, a couple of really important things to kind of keep in mind um, for most dentists out there when you're talking about, you know, why isn't my production up? Why are patients not saying yes? Those are some ideas for you to uh, think about. The next piece, this, Todd, this uh, little piece is around uh, patient service. You know, in the dental practice, when we talk about five-star service, um, there's one word that sums all of this up. And the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain, they charge about a, a, you know, a billion dollars a night for a room. I'm kidding, but it's you know, 700, 800 bucks or whatever it is. You know, there's one word, and it's called anticipation. In a dental practice, we have this thing called a computer system. And in that computer system, we have all the information about Joe and Lisa that we need to know about them. We need to know when we know when they like to come in. We know that when they come in and get their dentistry done, Joe likes to watch you know, a movie while he gets his dentistry done. And Lisa likes to have a warm blanket because she gets cold. If we can anticipate those needs and have them ready for them when Lisa and Joe come in, all of a sudden, you know, the patient feels like somebody listened to me, excuse me, somebody paid attention to me which in a dental practice is what the real, the real value is. Every patient has said this time and time again. The value for me is how much somebody listens to me when I'm in the chair or when I'm in the dental practice. And that's where most dental practices screw up. So that's just, you know, those are some important things in, in terms of when you're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, all of a sudden people's feelings become important. <laughs> They've always been important, but just most dental practices have chosen not to focus on that because, oh, that, that's touchy-feely and that doesn't mean anything. Well, it does now. It's hugely important. And the other piece, and I'm going to raise a few eyebrows with the next piece that I'm going to say is, you know, contactless pain. Those dental practices that can set it up so that patients can pay ahead of time on their website or through a portal are gonna be much farther ahead than other dental practices. They're gonna be taking advantage of some technology. And yes, there's some legal pieces around that, but you know, as we begin to move forward here, the less time the patient spends in the dental practice and they can come in quickly and leave quickly and the less amount of people that they see, the less chances there are of them getting sick. And so that's a huge piece as we look to the future here is being able to, you know, have them pay ahead of time so that they just walk in, they get the dentistry done and they walk out. So those are some things that I just want, felt I should mention today, just because of where we're at with this COVID piece and that has a huge, huge effect on the private dentist success, you know, as we get in, as we, you know, finish out the fourth quarter of this year and move into the first and second quarters of next year. So I just wanted to go ahead and share that with, with everyone. The Dental Breakdown Show, sponsored by White & Associates Practice Consulting. Better business, better dentistry. They are a practice management consulting firm for dentists and other healthcare-related businesses. Their sole purpose is to implement proven strategies through online and in-practice visits and result in the personal and professional success of the dentist and his or her team. Go ahead. The clients that you and I have worked with on efficiency, where you and I can go, and it relates to Joe, too, on Minnesota Transitions, 
is if you look at their operational systems, which are ineffective, they have too much and it's not, um, it's not simplified operational systems like too many instruments, too many burrs. Um, it's too complex. That translates into decreased profit. It, it's too much stress on the staff to do all this stuff. So if you can be more effective, efficient with the staff, less stress to come in and reorganize central uh, operational systems with burr kits, uh, with instrument trays and tubs. Um, I think this speaks volumes and sometimes you need some guidance on that. And when you become more effective like Ritz Carlton, when everybody around you is more confident and they talk about the systems that you're using, um, I think that is more of the total experience there's less banging of things, go down the hall and get me this. Um, you need some help with that. And that's what you and I do very well together. Well, this is kind of new material and it doesn't necessarily pertain to Joe and Lisa, but it does pertain to you because these are things we don't talk about. We don't care about. The factoids that most dentists care about are tooth related. These are the subjective things. You need a crown, you have a broken filling, you need a filling, but they don't understand the, the real big picture that we started to mention in the first podcast is about the health-centered and predictable dentistry. Let's talk about health-centered and um, let's talk about some things that dentists and Christian maybe and Joe and Lisey don't think about is that when we talk about longevity and life expectancy, we're talking about geriatric dentistry and geriatric dentistry is the, uh, uh, the most evolving part uh, of dentistry today, including me as a baby boomer. Um, our life cycle is entering a new phase, but we have to go back and look at what happened. For instance, in 1990, in 1956, the, the life expectancy of a male was 67.7 years. The life expectancy of a female was 72.9 years. Today, the life expectancy uh, is 82 years. That means that males could live 16 years longer, which has an implication on the treatment planning and what kind of restorations we're doing on our patients today. For instance, if we do a crown on a 50 year old person with a life expectancy of 82, that, crown, that crown's gotta last 32 more years. That means how do you keep that tooth in the human being up to 82 years old? That goes back to how you treatment plan today, especially with younger people. There's, there's different components of that. We need to be more preventative. And this goes back to podcast number four, number one. When we're treatment planning younger people, this goes back to prevention, uh, restabilization of the oral environment, uh, diagnosing acidic pH saliva. That means about uh, gastric reflux disease. That means about how do we prevert, how do we preserve enamel in the human life? And that means how do you incorporate bioactive materials, which will really prevent dissolution of tooth structure and how do you incorporate those into the dental practice today? Now, I think this is really interesting. There's not a bias, but I think we should really think about the life expectancy um, more carefully today. For instance, men, if they're healthy and they're in the top uh, bracket of age 70 with, uh, and they're healthy at age 70, they'll live to be 88 years old. If they're in the bottom 25% of health, being a 70 year old, their life expectancy drops to 6.7 years. Okay, that's very significant on, do you repair a crown or do you replace a crown? But you, you can't really say, I, I think you're going to only live six more years. You can't say that, but in the back of your mind, 
you have to really understand what this means in your dental practice when you're treatment planning. So really what this is gonna boil down to now is age health related dentistry, which was in our first podcast. Um, if you treat patients differently, you have to know, are they, are they unhealthy or healthy? And what kind of medications are they taking? Are they on chemotherapy? Um, are they on medications that create dry mouth syndrome? which means that they're gonna have a lot more decay problems. That means you're gonna to have to step up. For instance, in St. Paul now, I'm working with uh, oncologists in the Twin Cities that are referring patients to me because not only do they want uh, their, uh, their uh, gingival health, their periodontal health stabilized, uh, they don't want any disease processes, but they don't want these people breaking down while they're going through chemo therapy, oncology procedures. That means that I have to maintain these people with um, uh, home remedies, fluorides and um, uh, bioavailable uh, uh, medications, uh, things like this. So what you wanna remember, say for instance, a female at age 80, if they're in the top 25% of health they'll live to be another 13 years or more. That means 93 years old. And if they're in the bottom uh, 25%, if they are unhealthy, they may live another 4.6. Well, this all comes down to mathematics now, Christian, that you can see how you treatment plan a patient and how do you treatment plan them at different age brackets, especially the juveniles that are off on the wrong track you, this is this is uh, this has a effect and implications in the human life cycle, and if you spend time talking to the patients or parents about this, especially when you see decay at an early age, this is a lifelong consequence. It doesn't mean this is a procedure at the front desk to remove disease-related um, uh, restorations with bioactive materials today, now you can recenter and have a, a decrease in the risk of reduodontics or taking apart these teeth more often. How, how often can you take a tooth apart before there's no tooth? So what you can say, especially if a tooth has been disease related and it's restored like a big MOD, how can you prevent that tooth from being extracted? And these are pre-implant restorations because without that health implication and learning how to manage these patients, indeed the tooth, you will invest in a root canal, the tooth will break off. Now you need uh, implant you can maybe prevent an implant restoration by being more diagnostic and health-centered. This helps me know how I have to work on patients, Christian. This is the new frontier. Before it was cosmetic dentistry, now it was Invisalign. Um, what is it gonna be now? I think it's health-centered dentistry to become a physician of the mouth. And it, Joe, that helps you with Minnesota Transitions to um, have a conversation about the future of dentistry because we are not just dentists anymore. We're part of a healthcare team. Christian, can I have the next slide? If we talk about predictable dentistry and we talked about COVID coming back from COVID, they want one appointment. They wanna come back as an edge chipped, it's stained. Uh, they want healthy teeth. They don't wanna come back and have invasive procedures. They wanna avoid invasive procedures that leads to higher risks. So if we talk about what is predictable dentistry, what's in it for the patients and the dentist? Well, they want predictable schedules. They don't wanna be running an hour behind schedule and sitting in a reception room and thinking that they're gonna get COVID. Uh, they want very manageable schedules. They want treatment on time. 
They want life on time. They want to be part of a life cycle that somebody's going to manage their health care. They don't want any surprises during treatment. Oh, gee, oops, um, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. I think we're going to go from a filling to a root canal, and you're going to need a crown, and that means you're out of insurance benefits. They don't want any surprises with fees. They don't want to be uh, in that situation where there's a lot of unpredictability and stress in the room. They want increased confidence for everybody in the office. office. That means your, your assistant. I don't even call my assistant an assistant. She's my co-pilot. She's my partner in the chair to discuss the procedures at any time. And they want increased anxiety for everybody in the office with a harmonious team. That means everybody's on the same page. And goes back to the mentoring skills with practice management is that you have to have a coherent team that knows what everybody's talking about. And Christian, I think you'll agree with me, especially you and I come as a, as a, uh, a perfect set. And for Joe uh, and Lisa, you have to know, can you tell me a little bit more about your operational systems? Do you run on time? Uh, what is your social media content? Are you getting great reviews? Are, are you some of them out there that aren't great? And how can you increase the value of your practice, decrease stress in the team by implementing predictable dentistry related to healthcare? This is all new content that I don't think you've heard about, Christian, as it relates to the human life cycle. And how do you appropriately, without bias, treatment plan a person at different ages of their life. And uh, you can't get this on Google. Okay, you're not gonna pick this up in a webinar. You're gonna pick this up from a human dynamic of interpersonal relationships with qualified people. I think I've said enough. Um, I would say that was uh, right on the money, Frank. Um, I think that, uh, well, here, you know, a question for you, because of the clinical mentorship piece that you do, because of the consulting that you do, I think that that piece feeds right into helping the, the predictable dentistry piece in terms of, you know, working on the systems, getting the relationship between the doctor and the assistant down, you know, well, what type of supplies do I use? What should I be using? Because all of that will be able to help the patient get out on time, have a better experience, you know, less stress and, you know, a better dentistry. I think you'd agree with me. Well, it's the operational systems and today, dentists really are very resistant to change. And I don't, I don't blame them. You don't want to be flipping around and uh, be cavalier about getting a new system, but you really have to be um, inspired with somebody who can give you evidence and literature and the research on this and possibly incorporate new bioactive materials, which we're doing for clients for you, Christian, and there's less stress in the office because there's less management. The dentist forgets when he goes from operatory one into hygiene room number two, room number three, is that assistant in room number one has to manage all these products, take them back to central sterilization, inventory, who's reordering, and it becomes very um, stressful. And if you can simplify the systems, Joe and Lisa, then it becomes less stress. Um, and the patients really, they feel it, they get the vibe on it. They do. I've I've watched it in action, and I've I've seen the results of it. And the, the patients, um, they get up with a smile on their face, and they leave with a smile on their face, and they they feel good about their experience, and they come back because of it. Yeah. Um, that's not the case in most dental practices. <laughs> Joe, let me ask you a question: When you get an intake, a clinical intake on a possible transition. Um, of course, you look at the cash, you look at the banking, you look at the liquidity, you look at a lot of different things, but are you ever inquisitive about how are these practices place, placing themselves as being relevant in healthy practices uh, from the operational systems and do they talk about health? Uh, 
what we try to do is try to interview uh, a doctor who is transitioning their practice to really get a feel of kind of who they are and uh, what type of how they describe their their dental practice um, and just have a conversation with them that really allows us to kind of get a full more of a, a better understanding of who um, you know what what type of practice they have the other piece that's very important is when we have a, a doctor who's buying a practice is that we try to have the selling doctor and the buying doctor um, meeting each other as early in the process as possible um, and continuing to develop a connection as much as possible because the dental practice is really really a reflection of the the selling doctor and we want the the doctor who's taking over to really get to know and understand who that doctor is so they know what they're getting themselves into and that that has been i think the you know in, in terms of creating a successful transition of the practice the the more that these buying doctor and selling doctors can connect and get to know each other the better off everyone is i think it's interesting joe and interesting with the changes of the COVID and dentistry being part of uh, healthcare, not just dentistry, I think a talking point would be, where do you see dentistry going today? Are you tracking um, with the trends in dentistry or are you not tracking? Has the practice changed in the last 10 years with technology and services offered? You know, what, what we are looking at, you know, part of it is um, we kind of look at production and see how that's changed over the over the years. Um, and, you know, looking at production by ADA code allows us to see kind of how their services, how their production has fluctuated. And then talking and then and then having a conversation about, you know, with a doctor, on uh, you know, their philosophy of uh, practice really gets us to allows us to kind of get a good feeling on that. Thanks, Joe. Wonderful. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Frank. And thank you, Lisa. Um, guys, thank you for uh, being on the Dental Breakdown uh, show today. I think that the information we shared in this podcast was awesome. And it's going to make a huge impact, uh, not only on our listeners, but also on the private dentists. Uh, it's going to help them to become more profitable. It's going to help them to have a, a great end of the year and hopefully a good start to 2021. So I just want to say thank you very much uh, again for being on the show. Um, for all of our listeners, if uh, you know the topics that we discussed today, if you'd like more information, uh, please go to whitedentalconsulting.com/breakout. Thank you for listening today. I'm Christian White, the CEO of White and Associates Practice Consulting, Better Business, Better Dentistry. If you would like more information on today's topic, you can contact us at whitedentalconsulting.com/breakdown. Keep those teeth white, and see you next time on the Dental Breakdown Show.